Hello, and welcome to the American Civil War Podcast. Episode 53, Who is Joe Johnston? The Most Human General. My apologies, everyone. This episode is slightly delayed. I had to come up with this episode on short notice, actually, after juggling some of the schedule around. However, after thinking it over, the change is necessary. In order to properly understand the players for nearly the first full year of the Civil War, it is important to understand Joe Johnston. One of the most unique aspects of Joe Johnston is that, out of nearly all the great Civil War figures, he comes down to us with the most personality in the least mythology. Irascible, flawed, stubborn, and very human. Joe Johnston had admirers, both during and after the war. And yet, for many reasons, he never inspired the kind of blind adoration that so many ex-Confederate leaders attained. He was temperamental and prone to feuding, at least where Confederate President Jefferson Davis was concerned. Perhaps most oddly, Joe Johnson would in the end be defined as much by his relationship with General William Tecumseh Sherman and Ulysses Grant. They grew to respect one another on the battlefield, and ultimately, Sherman and Johnson especially, became fast friends in the post-war period. Now before we begin, there is one other aspect of the story to mention. Unlike many Civil War era contemporaries, Joe Johnson had his personal papers and letters burned after his death. Though a common request, most of the time a man or woman's heirs chose not to do this, and instead kept the items for posterity. Not so with Joe Johnson, whose family dutifully carried out the actions prescribed. In his specific case, it's likely that no great scandal or deep twist of history would have been revealed by those papers. And in any case, we have many letters he sent to others, and much documentation besides. Still, we will never know what might have been written down there. So much for the future of the past. Instead, let us explore the life and search for glory and honor that defined Joe Johnston. On January 3rd, 1807, Judge Peter Johnston and his wife Mary Valentine Johnston welcomed their seventh son into the family. They named him Joseph Eggleston Johnston, in honor of Peter's old commander in the Revolutionary War. Eggleston and Johnston served in the unit of the famous Light Horse Harry Lee. All this family lore seems to have had its due effect on the developing Joe Johnston. From a fairly early age, he bashed in the family's military reputation. Among other things, his father gave Joseph an heirloom sword, and it appears that the boy set his sights on attending West Point relatively early in life. That doesn't mean that education was everything to him. The Johnson family had moved out to Abingdon, Virginia, well before he was born. This is far out on the southwestern corner of the state. Education resources were a bit thin on the ground, although the family had access to the best of what was available. It appears that Joe Johnson learned the basic skills of life quite well, but unlike, say, George McClellan, he had neither the inclination nor the opportunity for advanced studies at a young age. What he did have was an inclination to explore with his brothers. They roamed all over the hills and valleys around Abingdon, eventually becoming quite hardy boys in the process. In one anecdote of childhood, he shattered a leg bone. Broken bone or no, he gave no complaint as his brothers took turns carrying him 
over miles of ground until they could reach a doctor who reset the bone. One aspect of this to note, too, is that his family was slaveholding. The Johnsons were well-to-do, if not exactly wealthy in the manner of planters. Joe Johnson had some fond memories of some of his slaves that the family owned. However, he personally never owned any slaves later in life. In the waning days of the presidential administration of James Monroe, yes, that James Monroe, then-Secretary of War John C. Calhoun, yes, that John C. Calhoun, approved an appointment for one Joe Johnston to West Point. Presumably, Johnson was overjoyed, but he tended to have such a serious and reserved presence that almost no one outside his family could entirely read him. The young Johnston, heir to his father's military career, would arrive at West Point in time for the summer training. He found a none-too-impressive military fortification, but in summertime the young cadets stayed in tents anyhow. There they drilled in military maneuvers and, in essence, camped like soldiers on the march. West Point's administration believed very strongly in practical military education as well as the more intellectual topics such as mathematics. One of the more curious aspects of Joe Johnson's four years of study was not so much that he had wild adventures, but that he didn't. The cadets were young, prone to foolishness, and even the most dutiful felt the irritatingly tight constraints of the military academy. Joe Johnson, on the other hand, received hardly a single mark on his record, and those those minor offenses at that. Just about every West Pointer got a nickname from the class, half a source of pride and half embarrassment. Johnson's was the Colonel, for his exceedingly severe manner. This does not mean he had no friends, however. Apart from Robert E. Lee, of whom we shall speak more, he counted Albert Sidney Johnson and Prince John Magruder as friends, along with younger cadets such as George McClellan. As a side note, Albert Sidney Johnson and Joe Johnson were not related. That said, Joe Johnson evidently had no particular interest in schoolboy rebelliousness, and, in general, his circle was known more for their studiousness than their excitement. It appears that, among other things, Johnson spent no time at Benny Haven's notorious off-post tavern. We should understand that Haven was just an ordinary proprietor, and his drinking hall not particularly shady in that regard. He just happened to own the nearest one, and so cadets routinely snuck away from West Point to drink there. They were, by the standards of the time, grown men, and their money spent as well as anyone's. The exceptionally tight military academy rules allowed not a minute away from the fort, or at least that's how the instructors saw matters. There were rumors, only documented much later on, that Joe Johnson and Jefferson Davis, one year ahead of him, got into a fight over a girl while at West Point. But the story is rather vague and somewhat unlikely if there was any truth to it at all. It's possible that Joe Johnston took a dim view of Davis after witnessing the latter barely survive the scrutiny of the staff when caught at Benny Havens. But even to that point, there is no real evidence. In all likelihood, the two just had little in common. Although acquainted and even similar in social class, they had very different personalities and perhaps interacted little. One man that both Jefferson Davis and Johnston admired together, however, was the young Robert E. Lee, the son of Light Horse Harry Lee himself. Robert was one of the few men that Johnston really looked up to as both a peer and a personal challenge. Implicitly, he always measured himself against Lee, and perhaps found himself wanting. Yet that also led Johnston to push farther and try harder. 
His academic performance, then, represented a strong point surprising perhaps to himself as well. Although never a great student, Johnson achieved credibly in classroom work. Most notably, for Joe Johnson, success did not come easily. But he worked at it and earned the rewards of applying himself, with the perhaps exception of mathematics. Johnson continually increased his class ranking and eventually graduated 13th of 46. Note, however, that half the class or more had dropped or been cut by the time those 46 graduated. Johnston likely hoped, as did nearly all the cadets, to earn a place in the Corps of Engineers. Unfortunately, that was a vain hope, not just for him. The engineers remained small in size despite their elite reputation. In Johnston's class specifically, only two men would be invited to join their ranks, Robert E. Lee and Charles Mason both of whom had exceptional credentials. For the rest of the graduates, their first posting would be, in order of prestige, the artillery, the infantry, and the cavalry. The cadets broadly viewed both the infantry and cavalry with some amount of disdain, steeped as they were in admiration of modern military professionalism. And although class rankings did not perfectly predict who could receive what posting, they usually did. Johnson's rank gave him a good opportunity to join the artillery corps, and he soon received orders confirming such. Although like all cadets, he received a furlough to visit home, Johnson soon returned to the region for his first posting in New York City. Yet he had little time to enjoy America's one true metropolis, for Nat Turner's rebellion down in Virginia in 1831 led to panic demands for reinforcement by the military. Although quickly crushed, Johnson's unit dutifully sailed for Fort Monroe. They saw no action, and in fact enjoyed rather lighter duties than in New York. Following this, Black Hawk's War in 1832 led to General Winfield Scott assembling an army and moving to decisively end the fighting. Johnson's unit once again went on the march. However, the troops took ill with cholera. In the end, Black Hawk and his allies were decisively defeated before Scott's command could even reach the field. Apart from easing the suffering of his fellow soldiers, Johnson saw no action once again. Joe Johnson had no time to get settled back into routine, however, because almost immediately the nullification crisis brought tensions to a head. He and many road-weary soldiers set out for Charleston Harbor, where they happily saw no action. This was just a threat by President Andrew Jackson. When the South Carolinians backed down, the matter ended. One interesting point, given the history to come, is that Joe Johnson's views on these matters are unclear. He possessed a deeply reserved and serious demeanor and seemed to rarely proclaim his ideas on politics. His brothers were another matter, much less quiet on the matter. Several had moved to South Carolina, where they became ardent nullifiers in 1832, and would continue to become ardent secessionists in 1860. Following another short-lived posting after that crisis, Johnson got caught up in the Seminole Wars, where he finally had a chance for some kind of military action. As with many young men, he desired excitement, but he would not find much of either action or excitement for another year thereafter. There was, however, enough blood, misery, and mosquitoes to share. Now, the Seminole Wars are a complex story that we can only briefly explain here. The Seminole tribe itself was something of a collection of American Indian or Native American peoples who had consolidated in the dense, swampy interior of Florida, 
although that, too, is an oversimplification. Among other things, many slaves in northern Florida or southern Georgia found the means to flee to the Seminoles, augmenting their numbers. Despite the complaints from planters on this half-controlled border, the federal government mostly maintained peace, despite the inconclusive First Seminole War. The beginnings of the Second Seminole War occurred in part because of the aforementioned Black Hawk War. In the aftermath, an angry public and the perpetually infuriated Andrew Jackson pushed along the Indian Removal Act. Leaving aside the other grisly consequences of this policy, it led to war down the length of Florida. Most tribes chose negotiation over violence when it came down to it, for they were utterly outmatched by the constantly growing United States. The Seminoles, however, felt more secure in isolated lands where white men had never tread. They resisted giving away their territory and hoped they could outlast invaders. And really, were the white men so obsessed that they wanted even these hinterland marshes? Nonetheless, negotiation might have worked out some form of peaceful compromise, unfair or cruel as it may have been, except that an Indian agent named Wiley Thompson decided he could sort out the matter personally by taking Seminole Chief Osceola prisoner during a meeting. There was only one little problem with this. Osceola was not so much intimidated as enraged. He promised to surrender his tribe, but had no trouble breaking his word to men who did not keep theirs. Within days, Seminole struck back and killed Wiley Thompson, who evidently failed to live up to his name. They also tore apart a U.S. Army patrol. The Second Seminole War had begun. The soldiers who took part in the fighting never forgot the horrible conditions, nor the miserable battles fought in the swamps. The army spent a great deal of blood, sweat, and treasure, although they would eventually win, driving one chief after another into surrender. It was also ultimately a wasteful and horrid exercise to appease a small but domineering segment of the public. Planters near Florida wanted the Seminole gone, and to recapture all the slaves that had fled to the tribe. Joe Johnson, still a lowly second lieutenant, would march in one of the main invasion columns headed by General Winfield Scott in 1836. After slugging across nearly the width of Florida from east to west, they arrived at a place called the Cove of Wilacuchi. This became Johnson's first taste of battle, but there was no glory to be had. The army won in the sense that they drove off the Seminoles guarding the cove, but they gained nothing more than this. Since the other columns failed to show, General Scott let the Seminole warriors go rather than attempt to chase after them farther inland with his worn-down force. He then set out for safe harbor at Fort Brook. This would very nearly end Joe Johnson's career with that as his only battle. Although promoted in the aftermath to first lieutenant, finally, he experienced no joy in that. His army days has been tedious, involved a great deal of travel to almost fight battles, and then ending anticlimactically. Men died around him without purpose beyond filling the graves with the ever-expanding sick list. Though he still yearned for advancement, he knew that would be quite difficult, even when the country faced a war. Although a hard worker, Johnson had not an opportunity to attract the eye of a top commander, necessary patronage in the antebellum military. Worse yet, the Jackson administration looked unfavorably on career professional officers, and had little interest in increasing their pay or prospects or the size of the regular army. They preferred to raise militia units from the states to fill ranks when needed. 
as though the state militia officers gave him the pride of rank and fame. So Joseph Eggleston Johnston, 1st Lieutenant, United States Army, resigned. He had good prospects, though, so this hardly meant the end of his opportunities. Graduation from West Point gave him the credentials to take up life as a civilian engineer, a surveyor, or perhaps some other professional role. Maybe he could even take up the trade of a planter or farmer if he could borrow some money from his family and acquire land. There was just one tiny problem. Nearly at the same moment he chose to resign, the nation entered the Panic of 1837. That blew up practically all of his options overnight. However, he did find one opportunity for adventure and little pay. The Topographical Corps, a half-military body. Johnson joined as a civilian, and would in fact return to Florida in the expedition of Navy Lieutenant Levin Powell. This body aimed to navigate along the southeastern coast of Florida, scout Seminole positions, and construct a small fortification to support the war. The Navy took on an underappreciated role in achieving victory during this period, as it hemmed in the Seminole and kept the pressure up, even as the tribe were slowly driven to surrender one area at a time. If this expedition had a weakness, it lay in the fact that most of the manpower were not soldiers, but sailors. They were unused to gun battles, and had only limited skill with arms themselves. And make no mistake, the Seminole may not have had the organization of a European battle force, but they remained extremely tenacious, well-armed, and knew a difficult landscape in great detail. The Powell expedition shipped out in small boats down the Florida coast in the waning days of 1837, putting in at the Jupiter River, today again called by the name the Seminole used, the Loxahatchee. After encountering a Seminole tribeswoman peacefully tending her cows, the expedition rather unchivalrously forced her to cooperate and lead them to her tribe. This she did, but the Americans would shortly discover that when you find the Seminole tribe, the Seminole tribe finds you. On January 15, 1838, Lieutenant Powell spotted the tribe's campfires across a clearing, and ordered an attack without scouting. In dismissing the prowess of his foe, he made a critical error. The Seminole grabbed their guns, and it all turned into a bitter skirmish. Most pressingly, the fifty-odd sailors more or less refused to fight. They had not the slightest intention of advancing into the teeth of Seminole bullets. Powell at first tried to get them to charge out from cover and disperse the enemy, but they declined. Eventually, as the incoming fire grew hotter, they fled back to the boats. The day was just about to turn into bloody chaos, another massacre. Then Joe Johnston, a civilian, took control of the twenty regular army men and began a fighting retreat, guarding the way and preventing the flight from turning into a one-sided route. Johnson and the soldiers kept this up for five hours before they had finally extricated themselves and the sailors. In the process, they fended off numerous small ambushes and stopped skirmishers from harassing the men. Powell's force managed to leave mostly alive. He lost five men, and guessed the Seminole lost eight. The student of American history might know that this event looks an awful lot like a reversal of Lexington and Concord in the Revolution. Unlike that battle, however, Powell inadvertently revealed a major Seminole camp. The leading American commander for this war launched a retaliation strike and won the Battle of Luxahatchee on January 24th. That commander, the controversial Quartermaster General Thomas Jessup, earned a reputation as a treacherous but effective fighter, 
breaking up the Seminole encampments as readily as he broke his word. The important thing for our story, however, is that Joe Johnston, the civilian attached to the expedition, received much praise for his decisive, if improvised, command. Few professional soldiers could have done better. In those five hours, Johnston gained more battle experience than in his entire professional military career. Moreover, the military established took note of his cool and effective conduct in the field. Johnston would spend a couple more months in 1838 assisting Powell, including building a small fortification in what is today Miami, and even entering the Everglades. He then returned northward and reactivated his commission in the Topographical Corps now. Johnson then took on a variety of tasks, surveying around the country for the next several years. Eventually, he settled down a bit working a desk in Washington. This allowed him to finally marry, in 1845 at the age of 38. His new wife, Lydia McLean, was a well-connected woman, and the two had known each other for many years. They would remain devoted for the rest of their lives, but never had children. That said, in this period, Joe Johnson began to look closely after his nephew, Preston Johnston, who went on to attend West Point as well. Joseph and Lydia, however, did not have long to enjoy their marriage. For the outbreak of war with Mexico in 1846 led to renewed opportunities for Joe Johnston to earn promotion and glory. Despite becoming a brevet captain, he wanted the recognition of permanent rank and still hungered for military achievement. Johnson would see no action in 1846, during Taylor's difficult advance to Monterey. He might have worried that fighting would end before he had any opportunity to join in, but if so, he worried needlessly. Mexico was far from beaten, and Polk's attempt to use General de Santa Ana rebounded to extend the war. In response to Taylor's slowdown, however, Polk grudgingly dispatched a second, better-supplied force under Winfield Scott. Included in this army were nearly all the great commanders of the Civil War, some of whom had been in the early fighting already. So it was that Joe Johnston found himself landing on the beaches of Veracruz, now a member of General Scott's official staff. As such, he helped organize key decisions on Scott's behalf. Although not a position of personal importance, serving on the staff of a man like General Scott meant an opportunity to learn military command up close, to converse with and ask questions of the General-in-Chief, and an opportunity to seek mentorship. Joseph Eggleston Johnson enters the story of the Mexican-American War when, in late March, he personally strode forth to the gates of Veracruz under flag of truce. He bore General Scott's request for the city to surrender. The defenders declined, and the siege began. Of course, this siege was also over in days, as we've seen, and became one of the few battles in which Joe Johnson did get wounded. That's foreshadowing for later. At Chiragordo, Johnson would join many of the West Pointers in acting as scouts, and essentially, frontline combat engineers helping to guide the militia. Unlike most, he led the vanguard of General Twiggs. Unfortunately, while trying to find the Mexican position, he took a stray round of grape shot and went down. Though thankfully, the wounds, if serious, did not prove fatal. In the aftermath of Chirigordo, Joe Johnson would receive an extra promotion. Although still only brevet, or field promotion, he could now call himself Lieutenant Colonel Johnston. Moreover, rather than returning to the staff or scouting, he would take command of one of the new volunteer regiments when they arrived. 
His particular regiment was formerly organized as Voltishers, a type of light infantry. He would in fact earn the glory he sought alongside these men. Although we don't have time to fully explore each of the following battles in detail, some brief explanation should suffice to explain why Joe Johnson emerged from the advance on Mexico City with such an excellent reputation. At Contreras, he and his soldiers stayed under cover for hours, enduring a powerful bombardment from Mexican General Valencia, only to launch a devastating flank attack around the Mexican rear at dawn. Of some note is that in the immediate aftermath of the battle, Robert E. Lee gravely informed Johnston that the latter's beloved nephew, Preston Johnston, had been killed in the fighting. Joe Johnston had no time to grieve, however. He fought in the Battle of Churubusco almost immediately, delivering a swift and devastating attack, although a costly one that succeeded only after brutal close-range fighting. Then the war slowed during a show of negotiations that ended when General Scott decided to flute the table and launched the battles of Chapultepec and Molino del Rey. Johnston fought, and both exacted a particularly grievous toll in American lives. In the Battle for Chapultepec, Johnston led his voltigeurs in a daring attack that seized a foothold on the heights, and then followed that up with grueling room-by-room fighting at close quarters. Yet again, however, he emerged in victory. This did finally lead to the last of the fighting, and the slow dance of negotiations that ultimately brought a lasting peace. Still mourning his nephew Preston, Johnson would exit Mexico with the army and return to the United States. Yet while many of his contemporaries took the opportunity to leave the military and join the civilian world, Joe Johnston did not. The war changed him, too. By the end of fighting, he had become a brevet colonel. He had earned a share of glory, and yet a certain restlessness now seemed to eat at him. Although well-traveled from his work in the topographical corps, Johnston now yearned to explore the frontiers of America and see whatever might be found there as well. Perhaps this stemmed from the loss of his nephew, whom he doted on almost as a son. Still formerly a part of the topographical corps, Johnson would have an excellent opportunity to see the farthest shore if he so wished. He undertook several expeditions and projects, some private, in the years following the Mexican-American War. Although fruitful, his ambitions were checked by the small peacetime military and the few positions of high command available. In 1853, that changed when President Pierce and Secretary of War Jefferson Davis added four new regiments to the army in order to guard and manage the much enlarged frontier. This was the opportunity Johnston needed, and as much as he could hope for. He received a lieutenant colonelcy in one of the new cavalry regiments based in Kansas. His colonel, Edwin Sumner, had a good ten years on him. The two apparently did not get along all that well, for Johnson wanted to modernize and standardize the cavalry with that newfangled invention, the revolver. He found Colonel Sumner hidebound and bureaucratic. That said, the post was not altogether horrid, for he kept up a lively correspondence with his junior, George McClellan, himself bound to see the farthest shore. Johnson, in fact, enthusiastically endorsed new tools, including the McClellan saddle when it came, and worked to get it adopted for service. Colonel Sumner would find himself the target of political retribution when he obeyed orders from the Pierce administration to prevent the Free State Party from meeting in Kansas. That, of course, led to the big show in time, but at the moment, Joe Johnson wanted little to do in the matter. 
He thought very little of the idea of stepping in to resolve civilian disputes, which was really not appropriate for the army. This may also suggest he had little ideological attachment to slavery. Pro-slavery men usually had no trouble reclaiming the inviability of the official territorial legislature and urged harsh punishment of the hated free soilers. That said, Joe Jumpton also had a distraction on his hands concerning his permanent ranking, and it was one creating an even more permanent rift between himself and Jefferson Davis. Davis was still at this time Secretary of War. As is usually the case, the trouble lay not so much in what Jefferson Davis did, but the manner in which he did it. Further, his odd self-righteousness further embittered Joe Johnston, as it did so many other men over the years. Essentially, the matter was a complication of the permanent rank that Johnston should have received following the Mexican-American War. To cut a long story short, the Army more or less made brevet promotions permanent. However, Joe Johnston had been promoted three grades, not merely one or even two. There were a whole pack of quibbles about documentation and precedent in the exact wording of the resolutions. Joe Johnston lobbied Davis's office, and they exchanged letters back and forth arguing the case. The long and short of it is this. In the end, Jefferson Davis denied Johnston the full rank increase to colonel. The wise and diplomatic approach would have been to essentially say that Johnston might be theoretically right on the merits, but that Congress did not specifically authorize the increase, and he was now of sufficient rank for that to matter. Davis could have, essentially, said that he had no authority to grant Johnston promotion, even though it might be well-deserved. Or perhaps that he was, reluctantly, upholding the decision of the previous Secretary of War, William Marcy. In other words, Davis had an excellent reason, an opportunity, to spare Johnston's pride, and perhaps gain a friend who might well go on to attain higher rank in the future. Jefferson Davis did not do this. Instead, he came up with some absurd argumentation, attempting to develop some justification, any justification, as to why he, Davis, was right and Johnston wrong. In the end, Davis decided that by shuffling around some dates he could arrange it thus that Johnston could not have been a brevet colonel at the point specified, even though he absolutely was. This was just self-deception based on the bare facts, and that is the root of the trouble. Joe Johnston knew it. From his point of view, Davis's self-righteousness looked awfully dishonest. Now, lest anyone think that Johnson's letter-writing campaign to have a situation reviewed was in any way defiant, well, it just wasn't so. The War Department had to accept a certain amount of backtalk from its officers. They were few in number, rather tight-knit, and endured the ignorant and tedious Washington bureaucracy that often had no idea about conditions on the frontier and little interest in learning. More than one officer discovered that the only way to get anything useful from the clerks was to write and write and write some more until they plain tired of refusing you. Well, I suppose some things never change. That said, Johnson found he might have an ally in the next Secretary of War once the Buchanan administration took office. Yes, that means it's once again our old pal John B. Floyd. Here is the twist of it all. Floyd happened to be very closely connected to the Johnston family. He came from Abingdon, too. His sister actually married another of Joe Johnston's nephews, John Johnston. If there was ever anyone who was going to give him a sympathetic hearing, it was Secretary Floyd. 
Thus it was that in 1858, ten years after the original decision, Joe Johnson became a full colonel. Now, Floyd's arguments on the matter were absolutely terrible as a matter of administrative practice or legal precedent, but Floyd never worried much about either. That said, quite a few fellow officers whispered against the promotion on the grounds that it looked an awful lot like nepotism. That appeared a fair assessment, but in truth, the army seemed to be a hotbed of influence peddling and favoritism anyway. Moreover, while Johnson had pressed his own case, he at least did so honestly as far as anyone can determine. His family and that of his wife were well-connected, and he could hardly avoid it. In the end, it barely mattered. Joe Johnson kept busy in 1857 and 1858 out on the frontier charting the borders of Kansas. By the time his promotion was actually confirmed, it was nearly 1860. Then, the aging quartermaster general, Thomas Jessup, passed away. He attained both fame and infamy in the Second Seminole War. But significantly, that title wasn't just for show. The position actually came with the rank of Brigadier General. And when General-in-Chief Scott offered Secretary Floyd his list of candidates, they included four names. Robert E. Lee, Charles F. Smith, Albert Sidney Johnston, and Joseph Eggleston Johnston. Not surprisingly, Floyd chose the man he was closely connected with. For Joe Johnston, no, Brigadier General Johnston, this represented the likely apex of his career, everything he had ever hoped dreamed of. He had attained military glory, the respect of his peers, and a rank to be proud of. Though the army didn't pay exceptionally well for the time, generals at least had income enough to act the part of gentlemen. Direct comparisons are quite difficult, but this is the pay of an upper-middle-class professional. If he found the office work a bit dull, General Johnson fit in well enough with the social life of the capital, and got on splendidly with the elite Southern politicians, especially Georgia Senator Robert Toombs and even Jefferson Davis. The old difficulty seemingly smoothed over, their wives kept the men in contact. And yet, throughout this period, political tensions kept increasing, and day by day everyone, knowingly or not, moved one step closer to the political precipice of secession. Joe Johnson agonized over this. No one knew in 1860 whether secession would happen. No one knew yet which parts of the South might secede if they did. Those who knew him discovered that he would pace his office in worry, or seemingly be lost in thought. As with Robert E. Lee, however, he would side not so much with the Confederacy, but with Virginia. As Virginia went, so would her sons. And so it would be with Joseph Eggleston Johnston. There is much complexity behind this. Johnson had spent only his childhood in Virginia. After this year in Abingdon, he crisscrossed the nation in service to his country. He spent time in slave states and free states alike, and he met people from all walks of life and many ethnicities, and bore witness to a constantly changing country. He counted Whigs and Democrats among his lifelong friends, though few Republicans. He was, in short, arguably a man of his country, and not merely one section. In addition, there is a curious possibility that Joe Johnston may have held dim views of slavery. He have evidently never acquired a single slave in his life, though he certainly might have afforded it at times. Even men of abolitionist sympathies found themselves sometimes with a slave in this period, even by happenstance, as happened to Ulysses S. Grant. 
and yet Johnson apparently didn't care for the notion. Alternatively, he might well have been able to set himself up as a planter with the help of his brothers. This is how Jefferson Davis became a man of wealth and leisure. Yet he also did not pursue that option. As we've seen, several of his siblings became loud advocates of slavery and secession alike. But it appears Joe Johnson did not wish to join in publicly supporting either. Ultimately, we do not and probably cannot untangle that knot now. Johnson always kept his strongest opinions close to the chest, and loss of many of his papers make the issue murkier. The question does become important during the war, however, because his actions surrounding Patrick Claiborne's proposal to free and arm slaves suggest a certain ambiguity in his relationship to slavery. Pro-slavery men generally had no problem declaring that very loudly. Joe Johnson did not. Regardless, Virginia in this period seemed to exert a nigh-mystic hold over those who came from its soil, at least outside of the western breakaway Appalachian region. But Joe Johnston had many reasons to side with her. For one, his family was nearly all Confederate. For another, he was closely related to, or associated with, many prominent Southerners. Siding with the Union would mean, at a minimum, being partly cut off from family. At worst, it could mean fighting or killing them. So, for better or worse, Joe Johnson, who had fought so long and tenaciously to attain his high rank, surrendered his commission and went home, sort of. He had no intention of staying out of the matter, however, and would soon present himself to newly appointed Confederate President Jefferson Davis. One way or another, he would get into the fight if there was fighting to be had. And that is why he donned a uniform of Cadet Gray, and was leading troops under a strange new flag, trying to maneuver against Harper's Ferry and Manassas simultaneously in 1861. In our next episode, we will go on and list the woes of Joe Johnston and his problems on the Potomac. Thank you for listening. This has been the American Civil War Podcast, and I hope you'll join us next time.